over the land The land of love It is the land of the free The free And the, and the home The home of the You're listening to Aretha Franklin putting the finishing touches on the star-spangled banner. Back in a moment. Hi, this is 1A. I'm Jen White. For the holiday, a special hour on the Star-Spangled Banner. It's part of our More Than Music series when we take a song, a composer, or a musical story and explore its meaning and why it still matters today. As ever, our guide for the hour is cultural historian Joe Horowitz. And we'll also hear from Alan Guelzo, a distinguished historian of the Civil War, from Devon Tynes, a preeminent African-American bass baritone, and from music historian Mark Clegg, author of Oh Say Can You Hear, a brand new history of our national anthem. Joe, tell us about that unusual rendition we just listened to. Hi, Jen. Well, we just heard the Star-Spangled Banner sung first by the Metropolitan Opera baritone Robert Merrill, who used to sing it at New York Yankees games at Yankee Stadium, then by the rock guitarist Jimi Hendrix, a legendary rendition from the 1969 Woodstock Festival, then with guitar Jose Feliciano at the 1968 Super Bowl, and finally by Aretha Franklin at the Thanksgiving Day Detroit Lions football game. My hometown. Now, those were amazing, Joe. But do you happen to have a favorite rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner? I I would say the most stirring rendition I ever heard was at a Seattle Mariners baseball game sung by a Wagnerian bass named Noel Mangan. He was taking part in Wagner's Parsifal at the Seattle Opera. That was in 2003, a time when a lot of people who went to Mariners games also went to Seattle's annual Summer Wagner Festival, and Mangan sang without any instrumental accompaniment. It was huge, and the crowd went crazy. What about a favorite recorded performance? Mm, There's an orchestral paraphrase of the Star-Spangled Banner by Morton Gould that he called Star-Spangled Overture. I I think it's pretty nifty. Thank you. 
So what would you say was the most influential version of the Star-Spangled Banner? That is a question for Mark Clegg. Let's ask him. There's so many influential versions of the Star-Spangled Banner, but for me, my personal favorite has got to be Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in August of 1969. But one of the amazing things I discovered in my research was that Hendrix actually played the national anthem more than 70 times during his concert career. And for me, the most powerful is actually a version he did earlier than Woodstock in October of 1968. And what Hendrix did with the anthem really was to, to paint a picture of the country at any particular moment, reflecting sort of the political anxieties, the tensions of the time. And October of 68, he's responding to Martin Luther King's assassination, to Robert Kennedy's assassination earlier in the year. It's a much more dystopian, darker version that starts almost like with this open improvisation. It quotes television theme songs, sort of in this anti-commercial gesture. And then references the anthem melody, but it doesn't stop there. It actually ends with taps. Most people I talk to really think that Whitney Houston's rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner from Super Bowl 25 in 1991 is the most powerful version of the anthem in recent memory. The first phrase is incredibly strong and bold and confident. There's a, there's a power. She's almost anticipating the beat. She's a little bit ahead of the orchestral accompaniment. The orchestra's doubling the melody in her voice. So there's this real strength. The second phrase, she pulls back. It becomes softer and more intimate. There's a kind of introspection, almost a, a sense of care and concern. And then you get to the, the third phrase, the climactic words, the, the illustration of the tension around rockets red glare and bombs bursting in air. And here, Houston's voice just soars. It opens up into this huge sort of gospel shout. phrase for me, you know, brings this concluding statement home by emphasizing the word free of sort of this ecstatic high note and then bringing home the notion of bravery and, and conclusion and triumph.
that's all very stirring and impressive. But Joe, isn't the Star-Spangled Banner pretty controversial today? It certainly is, (laughs) for at least three reasons. The first is that Francis Scott Key, who wrote the words, owned slaves. The second is that Key wrote a little-known third verse that references hireling and slave, and we're not really sure what that's about. And the third reason is that we're scrutinizing our notion of the United States as a historic land of the free as never before. The history of our national anthem, the topic of Mark Clegg's new book, casts light on all three of these issues. So that's what we're going to ponder in parts two and three of today's show, and we'll also hear from Devon Times, one of today's most prominent African-American concert singers, who's exploring something new to take the place of the Star-Spangled Banner. And what's that we're hearing now? I thought it might be entertaining to end part one of our Star-Spangled Banner show by sampling Igor Stravinsky's attempt to improve the national anthem by turning it into a hymn, an effort that landed him in some trouble in 1944 in the city of Boston, where he was accused of tampering with national property. Our special look at the history of our national anthem continues in a moment. I'm Jen White. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. For the holidays, we're looking at the history of the Star-Spangled Banner with cultural historian Joe Horowitz. And here's something you probably don't hear too often. And where is that man who so vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion a home and a country should leave us no more? Their blood has washed out their footsteps That's an excerpt from the third verse of the Star Spangled Banner, words today little known, rarely sung, in a rendition approximating what it might sound like in an early 19th century American parlor. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. What is that about? And what should we make of the fact that Francis Scott Key, who wrote those words, himself owned slaves? These days, what we mainly remember about Francis Scott Key is that he stood on the deck of a British warship during the British bombardment of Baltimore's Fort McHenry during the War of 1812, and that with the coming of the dawn's early light, he was thrilled to discern the fort's American flag still gallantly streaming. But what about Key's law practice and his dealings, personal and professional, 
with enslaved Americans. These questions are considered in exquisite detail by the music historian Mark Clegg in his new book, Oh Say Can You Hear? It's a cultural history of the Star-Spangled Banner, a history Clegg insists we must know and study because it will help us figure out what to make of our tangled national fate today. One of the reasons why I'm so fascinated with studying the Star-Spangled Banner is that it offers a kind of window into American history. It, it tells this American story of who we are and how we became to be what we are. And one of the things I really studied was the story of Francis Scott Key. I mean, who is he? What does it tell us? And we, what we learn is that he doesn't fit these sort of simple categorizations that we would like today of being either a good guy or a bad guy, being an abolitionist or a pro-slavery advocate. In fact, he did own slaves. He owned upwards of 12 people um, during his lifetime as slaves. He also volunteered his service as a lawyer representing black men, women, and children in court arguing for their freedom. He won a surprising number of these cases, resulting in the freedom of at least 189 people. So what is Francis Scott Key talking about when in the Star-Spangled Banner he references the hireling and slave? This is a critical question. I mean, what does the word slave mean in the lyric to the Star-Spangled Banner? It's in the third verse of the four original verses that Key wrote. And one thing I've come to discover is that what it meant in 1814 may surprise us. So the word slave turns out to be actually quite common in revolutionary poetry, revolutionary American poetry, both from the Revolutionary War and then from the War of 1812, which is often called the Second War of Independence. And what we have to remember is the critical question at this time is our independence from Britain, right? We we're, we're, have a revolution from the British king being represented by King George III. And so within the poetry of the time, the reference to the word slave really refers to whether or not one is subject to the will of a king or not. So when Key uses the phrase hireling and slave to talk about the British enemy, because that's what the third verse is about in this lyric about the Battle of Baltimore, he's actually sort of contrasting the sort of heroism of the American soldier who is a free person volunteering to fight for the country of their own free will, and the hireling, the mercenary, the paid soldier of King George, and the slave who is the vassal subject to a king, sort of, you know, performing the king's will rather than their own will. So it's sort of a little bit surprising to us today after the Civil War, after the notion of slavery has changed within American history, but the reference that Key makes to hireling and slave really is about the white British soldier, not about an actual enslaved person. Over the course of studying this troubling third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner, Mark Clegg became convinced that Francis Scott Key was not alluding to African-American slaves. But this discovery did not take Key off the hook. Because the word slave you know, may refer to a white British soldier rather than to an actual enslaved person of color, it's, it doesn't absolve Key and his contemporaries from being complicit in the evils of slavery. In fact, what it tells us is that the perspective of the white male in early American history was so dominant that you could use the word slave to talk about themselves rather than about actual enslaved people without irony. So that's, it sort of shows you the kind of blindness to the issue of freedom, at least within this political discourse. 
Another historian dealing with a controversial 19th century American is Alan Guelzo, whose new biography of Robert E. Lee was a Wall Street Journal best book of the year. An eminent Civil War historian, Guelzo has written compellingly on the topic of how to understand the past with insight and integrity, and at the same time with due regard for fraught present-day concerns. Our past grounds us. It gives us um, a sense that we have been through things before. We have been through great times, but we've also been through very difficult, sometimes bloody times. And nevertheless, we have been able to get through them. And this means we will get through them again. We are having difficult times today in terms of relationships, but we will get through them. And our past is a reminder of that and a reassurance. Being acquainted with what happened before makes us less likely to panic in confusion. It shows us we can do better. And that's particularly important for Americans because we don't have the resources other nations have to provide a sense of identity. We don't have an American race, an American religion, an American language. There's no American ethnicity. We are a nation dedicated to a proposition. That is so unusual in the history of the planet. How we have defended that proposition is our answer to the question, what is an American? So these are the ways in which we need to use the past and we need to cultivate it because it's really vital to our sense of ourselves today. And what is that proposition? The proposition most fundamentally is that we are all created equal and that we are endowed with certain natural rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and that people are governed by their consent. Those are the propositions right there in the Declaration. No other nation is formed around a series of sentences or propositions. They're formed around other things. But the American nation is formed around those things, and it was those things that Abraham Lincoln drew our attention to in the Gettysburg Address. We came into being dedicated to a proposition that all men are created equal. And it was over that proposition that in the largest sense we were fighting the Civil War. So where does that leave Francis Scott Key? How are we supposed to feel about him and about the slaves he owned? Francis Scott Key presents us the picture of a man and an era in transition. Up until the 18th century, and Key is born in the 18th century, up until the 18th century, everybody took slavery for granted. It was simply part of the continuum of labor that ran from slavery to indenture to apprenticeship And it wasn't until we get to the very end of the 18th century, it wasn't until we go through this great intellectual upheaval called the Enlightenment, that we start to question this idea about slavery. The other forms of labor start to become noble. People start to stand up and say, there's nothing wrong with working with your hands. There's nothing to be ashamed about that way. But slavery was obviously in a different category. And that's when people start to become uneasy about it. Uneasy and unsure what to do. How do you untie the bounds of slavery? Especially since you're moving into unmapped territory. In 2017, the words racist anthem were spray-painted on Baltimore's Francis Scott Key Monument. 
the words no refuge could save hireling and slave from the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner were painted on a nearby sidewalk. The pool of water surrounding the statue was stained red. Three years later, a statue of Key in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park was toppled with ropes. ABC News interviewed local residents. One said, Statues like this tend to make heroes of people without any real conversation about the full picture of what they did in their lives. How does Alan Guelzo, as an historian, feel about statues of Francis Scott Key or of Robert E. Lee or of slave-owning founding fathers? I often tell people that I am at sixes and sevens about statues. <laughs> we, we don't do a good job of minding our history in the first place. And things like No Child Left Behind, which was just a, a, a catastrophe for history teaching, anything which sets out to erase historical memory, whether it's statues or renamings or whatever, that always is going to make me a little uneasy because it subtracts from the visible reminders that we do have a history. And I'm uneasy about removing a statue, let's say, of Francis Scott Key, or even of Robert E. Lee, for, for basically for three reasons. For, for one thing, it's, it's a cheap victory. The, the statues don't fight back. So you win an easy triumph, but it's really only symbolic. You, you haven't really changed anything. And at the end, you always want to ask, so what has been accomplished? Second, it's often done badly. An example of this is the removal, or at least the proposed removal, of the Thomas Ball Emancipation Statue in Washington. The Ball Emancipation Statue has been decried because it seems to depict a slave cringing at Abraham Lincoln's feet. Well, actually, it doesn't do that at all. And anyone who took the trouble to look up the details of the statue's dedication in 1876 would know that that was celebrated as one of the great African-American public events of the 19th century. Maybe the greatest of these events before the March on Washington in 1963. I think the third problem, though, with removals is that if we want to tear down a statue to Robert E. Lee or to Francis Scott Key or, or to George Washington, and if we want to do that because they were slave owners, where are we going to stop? Shouldn't feminists demand removal of the statue of Martin Luther King in Washington because he was, a, he was a serial adulterer. I think of the removal, the tearing down, literally, of the statue of Joseph Stalin in Budapest in 1956, uh, of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. Even, there's even the statue of King George III that was torn down in Manhattan in 1776. But, but why those? Well, I think the reason that those are examples that we can live with is because there were people living then who had suffered harms at the hands of those individuals, of Stalin, of Saddam Hussein, even George III. Circling back to the Star-Spangled Banner, what it says and may suggest, here's the bass baritone Devon Tynes, whose anthem project with the Los Angeles Philharmonic will explore some new options. 
as the song progresses, you know, into the verses that people don't really know, um, the imagery and kind of the thrust of the idea continues to get darker and more complicated. Just themes of, you know, trampling over the carnage of enemies. It's a predominantly colonialist way of engaging the world and also a colonialist way of thinking about what is kind of a national value. You know, just the idea of we are sovereign as a country only at the defeat of someone else, I think is a pretty weak, if not demonstrably toxic way of building um, a foundation for a nation. So what other alternatives are there? We'll hear more from Devon Tynes and his thoughts about alternatives to the Star-Spangled Banner on part three of this program. Researching his new book, Mark Clegg discovered another source of alternatives. More than 580 alternative verses for the tune that became the Star-Spangled Banner. He draws particular attention to an 1844 anti-slavery version, Oh Say Do You Hear, that he believes should be widely taught. I asked him, why does any of this matter right now? You know, the reason I think this all matters so deeply at this moment is because democracy is in crisis. We have, a, I think, the wrong idea of what American patriotism is. We think of it as an immutable, unchanging idea, when in fact love of country in American history has been given voice to in so many different competing ways. It's really a, a conversation, a cacophonous conversation. And one of the reasons we know this is actually in the different lyrics that are sung to the Star-Spangled Banner. We think of the Star-Spangled Banner melody as being one song, but in fact, there are many, many different lyrics. And, and maybe the most powerful of, of these is an 1844 anti-slavery lyric titled, Oh Say Do You Hear? And it actually sort of grapples with the question, the irony of there being, you know, two million enslaved people who are not free in the United States using the melody in reference, you know, sort of in this a subtext to the call for freedom that's in Key's own lyric. And so there's, there's a kind of musical conversation going on between lyricists around this song that gives a much more vibrant illustration of the way democracy works. It's a conversation, it's a debate, it's an active changing phenomenon that patriotism is not one thing, but it's many things that change over time. The 1844 abolitionist anthem, Oh Say Do You Hear, begins, Oh Say Do You Hear at the Dawn's Early Light, the shrieks of those bondmen whose blood is now streaming from the merciless lash while our banner in sight with its stars mocking freedom is fitfully gleaming. Do you see the backs bare? Do you mark every score of the whip of the driver trace channels of gore? Oh, say do you Oh, yeah. 
our special look at the history of our national anthem continues in a moment. This is 1A, and we're back with our final chapter from cultural historian Joe Horowitz. Joe has been helping us explore the history of our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, which begins in the 18th century with this. You're listening to the Anacreontic Song, composed in the late 18th century for a gentleman's club of amateur musicians in London, England. The author of the tune, which is to say of the tune that Francis Scott Key would later use for the Star-Spangled Banner, was one Stafford Smith. Here again is Mark Clegg. So part of the anthem story that we have completely forgotten today is that in the early part of America's history, it was totally common and standard and typical to write lyrics to a small set of well-known tunes to comment on daily life, to comment on political moments, even even personal moments like an anniversary of, of a wedding. But there was this kind of conversation happening through newspapers, a kind of early, say, tweet or TikTok of having these ideas go viral and be reprinted from one text to the other, but they were done through song lyrics. And the importance of that was not just what they said, but how they attached emotion to the ideas. So you learned from the newspaper what was happening. You learned from song lyrics what it felt like, what was the emotional import of what was happening in your life. One of the amazing things is that Francis Scott Key wasn't trying to write a forever anthem when he wrote the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner. He was trying to comment on a current event. He expected that lyric to be ephemeral to go away, to be replaced by other lyrics, other conversations in song. And if in my research, I found actually over 600 lyrics that have been sung to the tune of the Star Spangled Banner in American history. And if you line them up from earliest to latest, Francis Scott Key is not number one. In fact, it's number 136. So there's a conversation going on about the country, about patriotism, about what it means to be American. Francis Scott Key is joining that conversation and passing it along to others to carry it forward. In other words, it was once a common practice to take a tune and set it to words that were topical, political, and ephemeral. And people didn't have to read music to sing a song if, as in the case of Stafford Smith's Anacreontic song, a great many of them already knew the tune. Except that Francis Scott Key's setting of the Anacreontic song turned out not to be ephemeral. It stuck around. And in 1931, it was formally adopted as the national anthem of the United States. What were some of the other options? Here's one. Hail Columbia.
Hail Columbia was in strong contention to be the national anthem of the United States. It predates Francis Scott Key's The Star-Spangled Banner. And for someone like John Philip Sousa, who was this famous band director in American history, director of the Marine Band in Washington, D.C., I mean, he saw Hail Columbia and the Star-Spangled Banner both functioning as a national anthem. But for him, the problem with the Star-Spangled Banner was that it was sung to a tune of European origin, of English origin, whereas Hail Columbia at least was written in the United States. So at different times, he would play one or the other as the national anthem, but he argued in print that Hail Columbia might be the better choice and in fact thought maybe we needed a whole new song. There were others who agreed that we needed a distinctly American tune for our national anthem. And actually, James Hewitt, an early American composer who had been in the New York Anacreontic Society, um, wrote a new tune to replace the anachronic melody as a vehicle for Key's lyric to assert that both the text and the music were American. And then there's the bohemian, Antonin Dvorak, who during his years as director of New York City's National Conservatory, 1892 to 1895, was by far the most eminent composer residing in the U.S. Upon discovering that both the Star-Spangled Banner and My Country Tis of Thee used tunes by British composers, Dvorak composed a new melody for My Country Tis of Thee and wound up using it in a string quintet he composed in Iowa. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountain side, let freedom ring. It's the fascinating novelty, part of Dvorak's campaign to help Americans find their own voice, as in his New World Symphony. If Antonin Dvorak felt that America's national anthem deserved an American tune, 70 years later, at the 1968 Olympics, it figured in a different type of controversy. Tommy Smith, having won the 200-meter sprint, raised a black-gloved fist in a black power salute during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner. Much more recently, as all football fans know, the San Francisco 49ers' Colin Kaepernick knelt during the national anthem to protest police brutality and racial inequality. What comes next? Devon Tynes is one of today's preeminent African-American vocalists. He majored in sociology at Harvard, then studied voice at the Juilliard School. His current project, Anthem, revisits the Star-Spangled Banner. It debuts at the Hollywood Bowl August 18. The current national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, is not exactly the ideals or values that I think um, a nation should be built on. It's actually a rather bellicose description of needing to conquer another in order to find sovereignty within a group. It inherently um, extols division and war, when in fact it might be more beneficial or generative of a positive sovereignty 
if we look towards ideals of unity, ideals of connection. And I think that the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, inherently does that. Um, in short order, it's really about saying lift every voice, meaning acknowledging the individual that can come together as a collective to look at our past as an information for our present that that collective can engage to plan as a unity for our future. A hymn to freedom, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was composed around 1900 by the brothers James Weldon and Rosamond Johnson, great names in the history of African-American culture. Beginning around World War I, it became known as the Black National Anthem. Devon Tynes suggests that Lift Every Voice could become the American National Anthem or a catalyst towards something entirely new. He has grown uncomfortable singing the Star-Spangled Banner. From the pure musical and performance aspect of it, it's, um, it's, it's a beautifully written piece of music. But I think what we're talking about more here is the content. And when I was younger, it just, it didn't, I didn't have that larger historical context. And as I've gotten older and understood my own just interests and hope for this country and for humanity in general, it continued to show itself that this song is perhaps problematic. Um, some because of the exact text and some because of how it is the product of an institution that has not existed in a way that has been conducive to the survival, the right to liberty, justice, and equality, and even happiness of my people. So it is an artifact of a place that has been antithetical to my ancestry. And what institution is that? I mean the institution of America, which undergirds the institution of slavery. And so Devon Tyne suggests that Lift Every Voice and Sing could furnish a more inclusive, more harmonious national anthem than the Star-Spangled Banner. Here's how it begins. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmony Devon Tynes sang Lift Every Voice and Sing at the 2019 commencement exercises of his alma mater, Harvard University. Let our rejoicings rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. This is Jen White. For the holidays, we've been investigating the history of the Star-Spangled Banner. We've heard from cultural historian Joe Horowitz, from Civil War historian Alan Guelzo, and right now from African-American baritone Devon Tynes. And also today, we've invited music historian Mark Clegg to share with us some of what he learned writing his new book, Osei Can You Hear? 
To sum up, let's ask Mark how he views the future of the Star-Spangled Banner. He's in favor of retaining it as our national anthem, but with two revisions. For me, the way in which the Star-Spangled Banner tells the story of American history, the, the way it serves as a repository or archive for the American past, is vital to understanding who we are today. And if we were to change the Star-Spangled Banner as the national anthem, if we were to lose that connection to our past, we would be impoverished as a nation. So I would advocate for keeping the Star-Spangled Banner as the national anthem. However, I would suggest two changes. One is that in the 1931 bill that made Key's song, the official anthem, fails to specify a text. It just says that the Star-Spangled Banner, the song known as the Star-Spangled Banner, is the national anthem of the United States. Well, in 1931, the song known as the Star-Spangled Banner only had three verses. They only sang verses one, two, and four of Key's original text. Verse three had been dropped prior to World War I from all official government representations, sheet music, um, printings of the lyric. So I think they really meant that the anthem was verses one, two, and four, not the verse with the reference to the word slave. So we should make that clear, make it official, create an official text for Francis Scott Key's lyric that takes the word slave, which regardless of what it might have meant in 1814, is divisive and makes many Americans feel unwelcome in their own national anthem. So we should make that change. The other thing we think we should do is that we should add a verse, or at least make all Americans aware of what was a fifth verse that was added to the Star-Spangled Banner in the U.S. Civil War in 1861. It's a verse by Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who is a poet and a physician, and it presciently predicts the end of slavery. It shows that the Civil War, this moment that made both flag and song sacred in American history, that this would be the song this would be the moment in American history that would end slavery. Oliver Wendell Holmes' anti-slavery verse reads, When our land is illumined by liberty's smile, if a foe from within strike a blow at her glory, down, down with the traitor that dares to defile the flag of her stars and the page of her story. By the millions unchained, when our birthright was gained, we will keep her bright blazon forever unstained. Music Radio Documentary was scripted and edited by Joe Horowitz. Sound design and production was provided by Peter Bogdanov. Morton Gould's Star-Spangled Overture was performed by the Ukraine Symphony, conducted by Thomas Kuchar. 
Dvorak's string quintet was performed by the Vlock Quartet. Both are Naxos recordings. The other music heard on today's show may be found at starspangledmusic.org. Today's program and other 1A More Than Music documentaries can be found at the1a.org. 1A comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.